Thank you for choosing to listen to On Air with Chai and supporting our cause. Being a nonprofit organization, we rely on the support from our community to help keep our programs running and allow us to continually service our families while offering incredible experiences, such as family vacations after treatments, trips to Edmonton Mall, home-cooked meals, big sibling programs, day camp and sleepover camp, and many, many more. If you enjoy our stories and you're thinking of making a charitable donation, think of High Lifeline Canada and the children you would be supporting. You can visit us at highlifelinecanada.org. You are put in the center of it and you're like, I can either sink or swim. Like, and I have to fight and I have to just keep going. And I was like, that's what I need to do. Like, it's, it's going to be terrible. It's going to be hard. It's not fair. But what other choice do I have? Welcome to On Air with Chai, a podcast that inspires, brings hope, shows resilience and strength. On today's episode, we speak with a young woman who has had to overcome adversity three times between the ages of 12, 17, and 19. That's Rifka Bookbinder. Every major event of her life so far has been marked by cancer. Our conversation covers everything from her losing her grandmother during her treatment, to not caring what happens to her when she goes in for surgery during the third diagnosis, to a total 360 degree attitude change. Hold on tight, because you're in for a roller coaster ride. Enjoy. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of On Air with Chai. I'm your solo host today, Brian Strasberg, and today we have a very special guest, Rivka Bookbinder, who is part of, who was part of High Lifeline uh, in New York, I believe. Um, we're going to hear, if not, she will correct me on that one. Um, it, was in the, it is in the States, though. Uh, she was diagnosed at the age of 12 with MPNST, which is Malignant Peripheral Nerve Sheath tumor. Um, she went through three rounds of seven rounds of chemo, sorry, and 31 rounds of radiation. That is a lot. Mm-hmm. Just the first time. <laughs> That's the first time this happened three more times and we are going to get into all of this. Um, Rifka, welcome. Thank you so, so much for joining us. Thank you for giving yes, us your thank time you for today. Me. Uh, we really do appreciate it. I know time crunch and everything, getting home after work and jumping on one of these things is, can be stressful at times. So Good. really thank you okay. so much. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Um, that is a lot. Yeah. Seven rounds of chemo and 31 rounds of radiation. Yeah. So the way that they broke it up was it was like five days in the hospital. So you did four days of treatment and then the fifth day was like fluids and basically trying to like flush everything out. Um, and then you kind of did it in between two weeks. And then for two months, I went to Boston for radiation and then did radiation every single day um, for 31 times. Yeah. We're going to back up here because this is a lot. So can you start from the beginning of this for us? Like when you yeah. were leading up to diagnosis and how old you were? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was in seventh grade and I was just like halfway through the year was experiencing like very excruciating leg pain. And it was kind of like pain where it was like, okay, this doesn't make sense, but we can't figure out what is going on. So um, we initially were like, okay, so to get to our basement, we had like a gate that was like three feet tall. And my brother would come down when we were downstairs doing homework and he would like mess with our homework. So in order to stop that, we had to like take, like we had to tie the gate up. So we had to jump over the gate. So we're like, okay, maybe you pulled something when you jumped over the gate. And then when I was downstairs, I would put my feet up on the printer at like this weird angle. So it's like, okay, maybe you like twisted something. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, my grandfather was diagnosed with cancer. And um, like, there was a lot of like back and forth of like attention on me and then attention on him. And I remember 
they were out of town and I woke up from a nap and I put my hands on my hips and there was like a lump on the right side of my hip. I was like, okay, that's weird. But at 12 years old, you're not like, oh, a lump, that's cancer. So like my mind was very much into like, oh, it's just, there's nothing there. It's probably like something that like, like I can't even put it into words like what I thought because I didn't think there was anything to be. Um, so my parents told me that we were going to go and get a biopsy and figure out what it was. And I was terrified. I remember like I threw chairs across the room. I shattered plates, ripped up paper. I was like, I don't want to have any kind of surgery. Like this, this isn't happening. And it wasn't that I was like scared that they were going to find something. It was just like at 12 years old, you don't want to have to go to the hospital and have some kind of surgery. And so I did the biopsy and then like a week later or something, um, my parents took me into the car and they're like, let's go. The desk came back and you have cancer. And if you ask me like what I was thinking or what I was feeling in that moment, I can't tell you because it was one of those moments where it's like in the movies where it's like everything is like fuzzy and like sound goes out and like you're hearing things, but you're not understanding what's going on. And it's just kind of all the blur. And so I was like, okay, but what does that mean? So then we went to the doctor and they're like, okay, we're going to do surgery. We're going to do radiation. We're going to do chemo and we're going to do all these things. And I was like, got it. Okay, let's do it. And it sounds weird when you say like, when you agree to it, but like you go into this moment of autopilot where you're like, okay, I'm just doing it. I'm not even thinking about what it means. Just going to go through, go to the hospital, get a port, get chemo, lose my hair. Literally, you know, when you lose your hair, it's not something where it's like when you brush your hair and actually like hair falls out, but it was to the point where like you could just like pluck it and it wasn't even attached. So like, I'm like, okay, I'm 12 years old and I'm losing my hair. Like what is going on with that? Or while the rest of my classmates are in class, I'm in the hospital, like, throwing up. And it was this weird dynamic of like, what is normal for a 12 year old and what is my normal. And so it was this weird world of everybody else is kind of going about their life. Everybody else is going about their day, but like my day is going into the hospital. And so it was like, it was just like this weird dynamic that I personally didn't even understand until afterwards that like what I was going through and what was happening was not a normal day-to-day thing. Being in the hospital for five days is not a normal thing. Getting chemo is not a normal thing. But yet it was my normal and it was my reality. And it was just like, it, it's a weird thing to that's, think about. That's, that's oh. really intense. I mean, it's at 12 years old, I don't even know like where to begin with that. How do you even begin to understand that? How, did, how, do, how was that right. introduced to you? Was it just like, hey, you have cancer. This is what we're going to do for it. Was it, you have cancer. This is what cancer is. This is what it does to you. This is the kind of cancer you have. Right. Was it, how was it explained to you? So it was kind of like a a mix of both where I didn't even know what kind of cancer I had until afterwards, because it was just kind of like, I I don't know if I'm like remembering it wrong where I blocked it out, but it was one of those things where it was like, this is what cancer is. And then you're going to have treatment and stuff. But I didn't even realize what it was because it wasn't until like a year afterwards was I was like, oh my gosh, like I had cancer. Like that is something that people die from. That is something. And like, I always say, it's like, you hear about it from like your grandparents or like your grandparents' friends or in movies and TV shows. So it's a word that I was familiar with because I had seen it with my grandfather, but then also just like in media, it's always like this 75 year old has cancer or whatever it is, but it was never like this child. And I was never exposed to that. And so I think for me, it was like, okay, I, I have cancer and I'm 12 and I'm a kid, but it's not the same. It's, it's just, it's a word that's associated with me, but it's not, it's not the same kind of disease that other people are dying from because it's not, you know what I'm saying? Like, it was this weird thing of like, it was a word that meant a diagnosis, but I didn't understand the severity of what it was. 
So, and then afterwards I was like, oh my gosh, like, I can't believe that I had like gone through and that. I, and I totally understand that. I have two very young girls, like a, a seven and five year old. I mean, if God forbid it, wow. I, I ever had to mention that to them, like you have a cancer right now, they'd be like, what is that? I don't understand. Yeah. You know, I'd have to like exactly. really and break it down that- for them where it's like this little tiny bad thing is inside of you and we need to go in and fish it out. Mm-hmm. Well, that is kind of the way that it was explained where it was like kind of where it was like, okay, you have cancer and then the cancer multiplies. So then your cells like, or whatever, try and fight it. And then um, they think that they're like helping. So then they multiply the cancer. So I do remember that was kind of like, there was some medicalness explained, but it wasn't like to the severity of like what it was. Do you find that you were treated as an adult instead of a kid? Yes. That's a big thing that I think that a lot of people can agree with is that when you are going through this kind of thing, you kind of become a, like, you have to become more authoritative of what you're going through because you have to say if something is painful, if you aren't feeling well and stuff, because nobody else knows what's going on. And I like personally do not like anything medical. I don't like any like blood or anything like that but for some reason when I talk about like the cancer I talk about it in a very like technical term and it's like this weird shift that I can do where it's like here's what's going on and then it's like with the other relapses I was able to like kind of like break it down in more of like medical terms if that makes sense I mean yeah because it was your life exactly and that's the thing is like when your life is cancer and and that is your entire focus it's it's you have to know what what's going on even if like you're in autopilot mode which i was and i was just focusing on going through the motions it didn't hit me and it didn't understand i was like okay i know that i'm getting chemo and i know that i'm getting rage i know i'm going having surgery i know that like the tumor is the size of a baseball but it, it's like you understand it but you don't and it's again like looking back on it you you are able to understand more wow being the age that you are now having gone through it two more times afterwards yep. everything probably comes flying by you from at 12 and be like oh that's what this mm-hmm. was mm-hmm. and that's that it was exactly it so the second relapse was when i was 17 i was in my senior year of high school and with chemo with cancer you have to have follow-ups to make sure that everything is like gone and it's it's like clear so you do three months and then you do six months and then you do a year and at five years you're considered to be completely in remission and completely like cancer free i was on my last mri at the five-year mark and everyone was like this is like your final scan you're going to be completely cancer free like everything is going to be like completely good and stuff and then they're like we think we found something and everyone's like, no, it's probably just something from radiation. It's probably just like tissue. It's all this stuff. It, it can't be cancer because it's been five years. It can't be cancer. Well, they said like, okay, let's do a biopsy. And I'm like, okay, I know, I know where this is going. And so they did the biopsy and this time it was on the hip. And so they're like, we can't remove the hip or the cancer without removing part of the hip. So they're like, you're 17 and we're going to give you a hip replacement. So I was like, Okay, so I'm 12. I have cancer. My childhood is completely taken away from me. Now I'm 17 and I'm going to have a hip replacement. Again, that is something that in the grand scheme of things you hear about for older people. So why am I in this environment and this situation where I am now having to be not a child, but an adult who's going through something? And so it was really hard because I ended up missing my graduation. 
And it was like a month before I was supposed to graduate high school. And it was really great because they do like this award ceremony for everyone who has like the highest grades and highest, it's like a high honors award. And so my counselor and my, like the principal were like, we're going to get you your cap and gown. We're going to get you your diploma and you're going to graduate at the ceremony. And then you're going to go off, you're going to do your surgery. We're going to support you, but you're still going to graduate high school. And it's, there's all these weird similarities. Like right before I got diagnosed the first time, I was just about to have my bat mitzvah. And then I had to not have that and have to have, you know, treatment and stuff. And I was supposed to graduate high school, these big life moments where like, you're supposed to like celebrate and be happy and like celebrate. And both times I was like, Oh no, actually I have to be in the hospital now. And the hip replacement, I had to learn how to walk again. I was in the hospital, like flat on my back for two months. Like it was crazy. And that was that in that moment I was 17, but I had been through it. So I knew what it meant, but I was like, okay, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to go through the motions. I've done it once. I can do it again. And people think it's like, oh, wow, like that's so amazing and stuff. But it's like, you have no other choice. Like when you're, when you're faced with this kind of stuff, you are put in the center of it. And you're like, I can either sink or swim. Like, and I have to fight and I have to just keep going. And I was like, that's what I need to do. Like, it's, it's going to be terrible. It's going to be hard. It's not fair. But what other choice do I have? You're adding another level to this with your hip replacement. Right. So you're sitting there. I've been through this. I know what it's about, but at the same time, you have no clue what it's about because now you're going for rehab afterwards. Exactly. Exactly. And that was the thing was the only thing was that the hip replacement, they weren't going to do any other treatment. They're like, we can just get it with the hip replacement. So I was like, okay, great. So I was, I graduated through the award ceremony. I had the hip replacement, was in the hospital for two months. Um, at the time when I was in the hospital, I, so I had done uh, the second time at Sloan in New York. The first time was in Minneapolis. And at the time my grandmother got like very sick, like very, very sick. And it was to the point where like, she was basically dying. And so my mom and my aunt were in New York with me. My mom flew back the day, like the day before. And then she died that morning. And I was like, okay, so now I'm in the hospital. My grandmother's just died. I didn't get a chance. Like I, I said goodbye to her before I left for New York, but then I didn't think that was gonna be the last time I saw her. Like she was at my award ceremony. She was there when I graduated, but like, I didn't think that was gonna be the last time I saw her. And I remember I had to do physical therapy every single day. And the problem was, is like when you're like, and this happens, like when you're laying down and you stand up really quickly, like you get super dizzy. And so that was what kept happening to me because I was flat on my back because they needed the hip to like fuse with the rest of everything. So I would stand up and I would get super dizzy. And so I hated doing physical therapy because it just made me feel nauseous. And I remember my, like I found my grandmother died and I was bawling, I was crying and the therapist came in and she's like, okay, it's time to go and do your like walking and stuff. I like, get out. Like, nope, this is not happening. She's like, no, but we need to do this. I'm like, I am not doing this. Like, you can't make me. And she's like, I can't leave until you at least stand up. I was like, fine, I'll stand up. I stood up the first time since I had the surgery, didn't feel nauseous and didn't feel dizzy. And I'm like, okay, I know that I can do this for my grandmother. And I know that she like, is with me and she's going to support me even though she's like not here anymore and i was like okay you know what Rifka, just take two steps for your grandmother and you can do this and i just took two full steps forward and i was like okay i'm gonna walk out of here and i'm going to walk out of here and i'm going to continue i'm going to keep on going and i was like okay i can do this for her and then less than a year later i relapsed for a third time Just keeps going. Are, and are these all after different the third time, cancers are they all the same type? 
same cancer. And so they think that it, because it's a nerve cancer. And so they think it might've been just like one nerve that kind of like just traveled forward. So it used to be first, it was on like the backside of the hip and then it was on the hip directly. And then it moved like a little bit forward. And so I, this was the lowest moment. Like I was convinced that I was going to die because I was like, nobody comes back from three times with cancer. Like I've been through this twice. I can't do it again. Like I'm not going to be able to do it again because it was also in a very complicated uh, place. It was right next to the femoral artery. And so the, can- the tumor was big enough that they were worried that if they went in, they would nick the femoral artery and they would have to do a full leg amputation to the point where I wouldn't even be able to have a uh, prosthetic because it would be so high up from the leg and the hip that there wouldn't be anything to attach to. So I'm like, so I'm 19. I had a hip replacement. I had, you know, cancer when I was 12. And now you're telling me that I might lose my leg. And so I was terrified. I was like, not only am I like going to lose my leg, but I'm probably going to die. And I remember talking to my mom and saying, I want to make as many memories as I can with my siblings so that they like have something to remember me by when I die, not if I die, because I was convinced that I was going to die. And I was just like really, really sad. And I remember like, even with that, I was like hopping around on one leg. Cause I'm like, okay, let me see what it's like to like maneuver with one leg. And like, let me figure out what's going on and stuff and how to kind of compensate it. And so the doctors were like, okay, your cancer is not always receptive to chemo, but let's just try something. Let's just see if we can do a couple rounds of chemo and see what happens. And I was like, okay, so I'm going to go through this again. I'm going to lose my hair. I'm going to feel nauseous. I'm going to have to, you know, spend a week in the hospital. Like, I don't want to have to do this again. And they weren't even optimistic about it. Like they weren't even sure that it was going to be able to work. And so the doctors were like, let's just do two rounds. We'll touch base. We'll see what happens. After two rounds, the tumor shrunk 75% to the point where the doctor, like literally his jaw dropped. He's like, I've never seen this before. We think that we can go in and do the surgery without having to do a a leg amputation. However, they weren't sure. So they gave me like a couple options. They're like, either we're going to have to do the leg amputation we're going to have to take like core muscles from your stomach to the point where like you won't be able to sit up on your own because like we have to like, because the, the leg had been through so much with radiation and two surgeries that they're like, we need other things to help it. And they're like, there's, or we might not do anything. We might just take the, the cancer out and then you'll be fine. So I went into surgery, not knowing if I was going to wake up with two legs. And so it was like this weird thing where it was like, I was like, okay, I know what the plan is. And I'm half like, you know, out of it from the anesthesia and stuff, whatever. But I, I went, into the surgery, not knowing if I was going to wake up. What's going on in your mind at that time? And I'm like, okay, again, like I was like, just like, you already think you're going to die. So what's the worst that can happen in the situation? Like, you know, what else do you have? Like, in my mind, I was like, I don't care because I I can't, I can't do it anymore. So I was like, I don't care what the outcome is. I just like, I'm just going to do it. And then kind of like have to deal with it. And so I remember waking up and I was still out of it from the anesthesia. And I was like, Rifka, just wiggle, wiggle your feet. If you have two legs, once again, you're going to walk out of this hospital room and you're going to, you're going to be cancer and you're going to do this. And I wiggle my toes and I was like, okay, you have two feet. You're fine. They just removed the tumor and you got this. Like you can beat this again. And I remember like, and this kind of became like a mantra of mine where I was like thinking back and I was like, it was right after the surgery and I was thinking back and I'm like, look at all that you've been through and every single time you've done it. Like you've beat cancer. It's sucked. It's been horrible. It's been terrible. And like, you've had really low moments, but you kept fighting. And I started thinking, I'm like, okay, what happened today that I 
I did that I was happy with or that I was positive, like that I was positive. So I live by this mantra of like, if every single day you can find something positive to get you to the next day, be like, okay, I found my positive moment. I got this day. I found one thing that I'm happy with or one thing that I'm positive with. I can't wait to see what tomorrow brings. You're going to start living your life where every single day you find one positive thing that propels you to the next day. So I was able to do this because I'm like, okay, you know what? It was terrible going through surgery again, but you have two legs and you're going to walk out of this hospital room. And the next day you didn't feel nauseous from chemo. You were able to eat a bag of chips, like your favorite bag of chips or, you know, the next day. And it's, it's these moments of like, something could be super, super big, like having two legs and being able to walk or being able to eat a bag of chips. And so I wasn't really comparing what the moments were. Like if one was this huge monumentous moment of I walked or I had two legs to a bag of chips, but it was a positive thing that I found in the day where everything was stinky. And so that kind of became my thing of like, if you can find a positive moment every day, it'll get you to. I mean, that, 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 that's a big perspective shift. That's a big mind shift from mm -hmm. going into a third surgery of, I don't care how this turns out, if I end up with one leg or not and no stomach abs mm -hmm. to, okay, I've been through <laughs> three surgeries now. Yeah, We've pulled this off. I've managed to get myself through all, mm -hmm. all of them. How, exactly. what, what, what was your mindset through the 17 to 19 year old part? So after the hip surgery and after I learned how to walk and everything, I went to college for a year. And I remember thinking like, I, like it was right after the summer. And that was really hard because everybody else had the summer to prepare for college and like shift and figure out what they were doing and stuff. And I was using a walker and I was like, okay, I'm going to walk on campus with a walker. And I remember I was terrified people were going to stare at me and it was going to be this, you know, big spectacle. And like, it was just going to be this big thing. No one really said anything. And I remember like starting my class and I like always knew that I wanted to be a teacher, like since I was very little. I used to have pretend school with my siblings and like give them fake homework. And I like love working with kids. And I was like, okay, you know what, Rifka, you're going to be a teacher and you're going to do this. And so I remember like walking onto campus and I was walking with a walker and I was like, this isn't how you want it to go, but you're here. And that's what you need to focus on. And so when I like the, the, the 17 to 19 was like, I was in college for a year. And then when I relapsed, I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, once again, these moments that are supposed to be big and celebrated and like milestones, my milestones are marked with when I had cancer. So bar mitzvah, cancer, graduation, cancer, first year of college, cancer. And so it was like, it was hard to distinguish between the two. And I started having this like thought of like, am I just cancer diagnoses? Is like that all that I am? Like, is there nothing else to my story? And then it's like a big thing where it's like, you have this shift of like, cancer is a part of me, but it doesn't define who I am. It is, it shaped who I am. It shaped how I've seen the world and how I think about the world, but it doesn't define who I am. I'm a teacher. I'm a sibling. I love photography. You know, there's other things about my personality and my character, who I am, that isn't just tied to cancer. And that's very important too, because a lot of people will take that identity and be like, I am a cancer survivor and that's all I am. That's all mm -hmm. I'm going to work off of. You call yourself a survivor. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, a lot of people don't call themselves survivors, but you are going by that. So what triggers that kind of mentality of I've survived this yeah, I mean, instead of I beat yeah, it? That's, it's hard because I feel like that's always been like a really... It's hard because it's like for me, like I always like really struggle with people are like, oh, they lost their fight with cancer or they lost their battle with cancer. 
it's not exactly a fair fight. Like, it's not like you're in the ring and you got your boxing gloves and you're like, oh yeah, like I, I, you know, I trained really hard and I like practice every single day and I was able to beat cancer. So it's like, I always like really struggle with that because it's, it's hard to distinguish between like how you beat it and like how you fight it. Because if you like, like, cause it's one of those things where it's like, you, you have to go to the hospital, you know, you do the treatment, you do the surgeries. It doesn't always work. And sometimes it does. And that that's not really in your control because it just happens but it, it's all about the mentality and your perspective of how you go about it. So I think if you can fight what you're going through in terms of like my perspective, I was like, I was ready to give up, but I don't think I could have done it and continued on if I just gave up. And so I think it's one of those things where it's like, you have to have your perspective of how are you going to use your personality and your perseverance to fight it? So I think as a survivor, I didn't give up. I didn't, you know, put in the towel or whatever, I continued to fight and I continued to do everything I could to have a positive mindset and just go about everything that I knew I had to do. Was your, did your family support help with that mindset? Did it really kind of encompass everything for you to kind of give you something to strive towards? Did you have an end goal? Did you have, if I get through this, this is what I'm going to be doing. This is my plan of attack. And the minute get done mm -hmm. with this, I'm going to be looking forward to whatever it might be. Not so much. I think it was more like, there wasn't like a, like, if you go through this, like, here's this big thing, whatever, it was more just like the fact that they were there to support me. And I think that it's one of those things. And this is kind of like a little bit of a shift, but it, I like my family was my biggest support. Like they were there for me bedside on my bedside. Like they were, they were taking me like through everything, whatever. But at the same time, it's really hard because they don't know what it's like. And they don't know what it's like to literally touch your hair and have it plucked out. Like it, it doesn't, it's not attached. They don't know what it's like to no longer be able to eat a specific food because even just the thought of it makes you nauseous and you have such a strong aversion to it because you had it when you were uh, doing treatment and they don't know what it's like to, you know, get a cancer diagnosis. And so that's when like high lifeline came in and stuff. And it was this big thing of like kids understand what, you're going through because they are kids who are also going through the same thing. And even though you didn't have the same treatment plan, and even though you didn't have the same diagnosis, like you got it and you understood it. And so it's this really great thing because you have two support systems. You have your family support system who love you and care about you and are there for you. But then you also have the high lifeline support system of people who understand and people who are there to support you. And then also on the layer of high lifeline support, it's like the campers and the counselors. So the campers get it, but then the counselors are there to love and support you. Did you go to Camp Simcha? Through that same fashion of your family. Did you go to Camp mm -hmm. Simcha? I did go to Camp Simcha. So I went to Camp Simcha five or six years. So I went, the first time I was diagnosed, I went to Camp Simcha for four years. And then I was actually going to come back as staff. When I was 17, I applied, I got accepted, and I was going to come back as staff. And then I relapsed and stuff. And it was just too complicated to go to camp with the hip surgery and things like that. And then I went on Romare twice, went on Wish at the Wall, was like, graduated, was done with everything. And then I went back to camp two years after the third diagnosis. So I've done, I've done all of it. And I, I mean, it's, it's a happy place. It's your safe space. It's the place where you feel like you are a part of something. I've heard, I've heard incredible, incredible things from it. We've interviewed uh, the two directors for Camp Simcha. We've mm -hmm. interviewed other uh, clients that have been to Camp Simcha. I personally have not been there yet. Um, I'm, hopefully I will be going oh, in the summer to, go. to drop in yes. and see what it's all about. What, what is your, yeah. 
and I've done like Java tones and things like that. And so that was the thing is like, I've done, so it's really hard because like Minneapolis doesn't have a chapter with my lifeline. So I did a bunch of stuff with um, Chicago and like the Midwest area. So I have done like, I'm really like friendly with like the Midwest chapter and stuff. And then I did camp um, in New York. Okay. So, okay. So you were part of uh, Chicago's chapter. We actually spoke to uh, Moish who started up the Chicago chapter. Um, So I want to take it back a little bit. Uh, Okay. So at 12 years old, being diagnosed, not fully understanding what you have, what you're going through, but knowing that you're not going to be in school for a long time. Mm -hmm. How did your friends react to this? So that's actually funny because my school is actually doing an interview separate with that, like how the like school kind of like helped me through everything. So I remember the first time when I was diagnosed, one of the first things I said was, I want my friends to know what I'm going through because I knew I was going to be in school, but also these were people that like I cared about and who I knew cared about me. So I wanted them to know what was going on. Um, and so it was unbelievable. So they got me an iPod. So that way when I was in Boston and in treatment and stuff, I could have something to play with and like something that I could use. Um, they got me each because they knew when I was going to uh, radiation, they got me uh, like little presents, like little gifts. And then each of them came with a card. So that way every single day at the end of radiation, I could open it up and have something to look forward to. Um, they got me a computer so that way I could like Skype in to classes and stuff and still be a part of it. Um, they made me like videos and sent them to me and stuff. So like my class and my school was like unbelievably supportive. And that was the first group that I had had where people were there for me and stuff. And like, it was like, it's so weird to also be back in a school and like, God forbid, like no one should have to go through this and stuff. But like think about like the seventh graders now of like, I was that age when I was going through this. Like, it's a weird like mind situation where you're like, when you're at that age, you like you, like I said, like you feel like an adult and you feel like you're not a child anymore because your childhood is taken away from you because instead of going to the park or to school or a friend's house or having a sleepover, like you're sleeping in the hospital. And, you know, it's this weird moment of like, you're not a child. But then when I look at these seventh graders, they're like, they're children. So like, they, they couldn't possibly go through something like this. Like I, and so it's, it's weird to think about, especially being back here and working here. Cause this is the school, the school that I work at is the school that like I went to and also was first diagnosed in. And so it's just this weird dynamic of like thinking about, I was your age. Like I was in the hospital. You guys got to run around and play with each other. Yeah. And I mean, it's one of those things where it's like, it's not that I was jealous of them because like, you, you just don't have that mindset of like, oh, I wish I could do it. But it's this weird mindset of like, you like, it's, it's, I'm on a different level. Like it's, it's, it's not even the same thing. It's not the same realm. It's not the same environment. It's, there's nothing similar to it. And it wasn't like, I was like, oh my God, I wish I could go and like sleep over at this person's house or go to this party and stuff. It was like, I don't get to do that because of what I'm going through. And it was like, there was, there was no jealousy and stuff, but it was just like this weird thing of like, there's no comparison. Like we, we don't have this commonality of like, we have shared experiences because we don't like I'm in class on a computer, but then this was, you know, obviously before COVID and stuff, but I was Skyping into a class from Boston in the hospital. Like it was, it was weird. Wow. But yeah, it's a different, uh, different life altogether especially then versus now, technologically speaking, to be able Mm -hmm. to Skype in, let's say Zoom and Zoom wasn't around then, 
to Skype exactly. in at that point is a huge deal. It was yeah, it was because the schools here at least didn't have internet. I don't think at that point, anyways. Um, do you feel that you were stunted at all socially, like developing socially uh, because of what was going on, or because you had to be in the hospital for so long? I don't think so, because I think it was one of those things because I was surrounded by my friends and stuff and because I was having constant contact with people, it wasn't like something where I was like, I felt like I was isolated. And the weird thing is, is like, I don't know if it's like something to be like embarrassed about, but I remember like the first couple of years after my first diagnosis, like I didn't want anybody knowing because I didn't want people to look at me differently. I was ashamed of it. Like I felt like I like did something wrong. And I was like, unless you were like a very, very close friend, you didn't know what I was going through. And so I basically put up this wall of like, nope, nothing different about me. I'm totally normal. There's like nothing else that's different. So I feel like it was a, a, a difference because like I didn't allow myself to like isolate and be separate from the rest of my friends and stuff, because I was like, I'm just going to be normal and you know, whatever normal is, but I didn't create an environment. I tried not to create an environment where I felt like I was like separated, but I was like, and that's the thing is like, I was constantly going to my friends and talking to them and things like that. So I felt like I wasn't so much like separated from that. What was your parents' reaction when you were first diagnosed? So I think it was one of those. And like, obviously like, I don't know because like they definitely put on like a front of like, we're just going to go through everything. But I think it was one of those things where like everybody was like scared, but nobody like let onto like what was going on. And so it was like, it was hard. I mean, like my whole family, like it was really, really hard. And at 12 years old, it's just, yeah. I feel for you, I feel for anybody in that stage that has to go through that. Well, and the crazy thing was, is my mom said, like when I was in the hospital, like I would look at the other kids and be like, well, why are they going through that? That's not fair. And like, there'd be like this five-year-old and like no hair and like be hooked up to an IV pole. And she said, I never asked like why I was going through it. I always said like, why is everybody else going through it? Because it just, because like, obviously like from your own eyes and from your own perspective, like, you know what you're going through, but then to see someone else, like from that perspective, it's like, oh, that's not okay. What they're going through. That doesn't make sense. But not thinking about how. I feel that for people, for kids that are younger, like that five-year-old, three-year-olds that go through it, newborns that mm-hmm. go for it, go through it. It's not easy at all for them, but I feel if they're going to mm-hmm. go through it, it's a horrible thing to say, but it's a better stage or time in life to go through it because they're younger. They may not remember it yeah. as well. They're not missing mm-hmm. out on such big things in their life. Yes. Developmentally, educationally, they yes, might be absolutely. a little bit delayed, but like no, socially, absolutely they're not going to miss major milestones like bat mitzvahs or college or anything like that. You know, so I feel like mm-hmm. it might be a little bit better. It's never better. God forbid I'm getting with it. No, I, I completely just, get it. It hits saying. very differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's one of those things where it's like, I think you touched on this with like the memory and stuff. And it's, it's weird because it's like, even though each time I was at an age that I like was coherent enough that like my memories were like formed enough. Like it's like when you're a little kid, like you don't really remember that, but the things that you block out, like it's, it's one of those things where like, even still, like there's so many things where I like, it, it's weird. Cause it's like, I'll see something or smell something. I'm like, oh, and I'll be like, Whoa, like that was a full flashback of something that I completely blocked out. Like you, your brain is just like, it knows that you can't handle like remembering this kind of stuff. So like, remember the feeling and the thoughts and like the story and stuff. I've told it enough times that I can kind of just say it. But then to think about like the actual emotions and like what it meant and when I went through is like very different. Cause it's again, like that thing where it's like, I say it, I'm like, wait, like that actually, like that's a thing that happened. Right. Um, I want to change 
directions a little bit here, um, if that's okay. Um, so totally. at what point, I know you did a converse, you did a, a talking engagement with High Lifeline. At what point was mm-hmm. that? Can you talk about that a little bit? Oh, how many times did you do it? Um, so I've done two like big speeches. Um, uh, my first year back at camp, they had somebody come and they were doing like promo videos. And so like, if you ever see the videos of like, um, they did one for like, I think Rosh Hashanah, they did one for, uh, like they, they did a couple of them, like Mother's Day. It's they- like a gala, you were dressed up and everything. Yeah. So the person who was doing it basically like reached out and was like, Hey, like we have the High Life Flying annual gala. Do you want to come and speak at it? And I was like, okay, great. I can do that and stuff. But like, I wasn't aware of how big it was. I was like, okay. And they're like, this is for like all the people who donate. And this is kind of like to really get the message across of like how important high lifeline is. And I remember like, I think it was like 2000, like 2,500 people or something like that. And I remember thinking like, yeah, wow. <laughs> it was over 2000 people. I 500 people. Yeah. And I was like, <laughs> I okay, whatever. Um, no big deal. And again, like they were like, okay, here's like the parameters of the speech. This is how long it needs to be. And again, like, how do you talk about a, your journey, your story, but also how important high lifeline is in under, you know, five minutes. Like it, you can't do that because there's so many stories. There's so many people, there's so much meaning behind it that it's really hard to do it. Um, but yeah, that was the first like big official one that I've done. I've spoken at like Shabbatones. I've done things like that and like different like events that they've done. And then I did one for wish at the wall with, um, Chicago, like it was in Chicago and that was actually right before like everything shut down. Like it was the weekend before we went into lockdown. So that was yeah. crazy. I was back in March. Um, but yeah, so I've done like two like big speeches and then I've done like a bunch of like speeches throughout like, um, Shabbatones and like different things and whatever, but I like it. And that's the thing is like, I, like I said, like when I first like went through the first time, never talked about it, never mentioned it. And like now I'm very open about it and like very comfortable sharing it. And I don't know like what changed, but I feel like it's like, not that I like have this like amazing message to say or whatever, but it's one of those things where it's like, I know what people are going through. And if I can help somebody kind of either change their mindset or just like make them not feel as alone and let people know how like I kind of went through everything, then that's kind of what I wanted to. And then also if it helps my lifeline, like that's a big thing for me too, because they helped me so much like it was unreal I, I kind of know how they did it, how they helped you but like in what manners did they help you so like i said like there's there's kind of two parts of the high lifeline there's the campers that you meet who understand what you're going through and who you can connect to and build relationships with but then there are the, also the counselors who you don't really feel like they're your babysitter or your caretaker it's somebody that is there to hang out with you and make you have this amazing time and stuff and that's kind of the whole point of like camp is to kind of make kids feel normal again like you're at a camp and like the camp is well above what any camp is or you know like I was talking to my siblings and they're like that that's not a normal camp like you don't go to a camp where there's a fully stocked canteen and you know you have shows every single night and like helicopter rides exactly helicopter rides or five course meals where it's like if you're not feeling the meal like you can just special order whatever you want and so it was one of those things where it's like they make it like you, they make you feel like a kid. So like you're doing camp activities, you're doing pottery, you're doing painting, you're doing all these different things and stuff. But then also you build these connections and friendships with people that matter. Like, I mean, every friendship matters, but it's like, it's, it's more than that because it's people who get you and it's people who understand what you're going through. And the fact that like, you can share that commonality, but then also just talk about like random stuff as well. So it's like, it's really cool because you know that you can talk about cancer and diagnoses and treatments, but then you can also talk about like 
you know, school and books and like other things that like really aren't on the same level, but that people do understand what you're going through. So you've mentioned that a couple of times now. How difficult is it to connect with people after going through all of this? It's, it's not that it's, yeah. So it's like, it's hard because like my family, my friends were there by my bedside when I was going through treatment, but it doesn't, it doesn't connect in the same way because they really, like I said, like they don't know what it's like to not be able to eat food because you can't even stand the smell of it or the thought of it. They don't know what it's like to, um, you know, lose your hair. They don't know what it's like to have to miss school. It's, it's one of those things where it's like, I get you. We don't have the same diagnosis maybe, or we don't have the same treatment, but I get you. And that's the biggest right. thing because you f- you're surrounded by people, but you feel alone because people don't get, and it's, like god forbid no one should really understand it and nobody should be able to get it but to have that is so it, it, it's on another level of important because you feel alone i mean you feel like people don't get what you're going through because they don't and it's i mean and the crazy thing is i've met people who had the same diagnosis as me and i always thought it was like this like because it was a super rare kind of cancer and no one else like i had known had had it and so to be able to connect to people and be like i get it I, I get it. Like, I understand. It's a big thing. That's a huge thing, especially for your mental well-being, to know that there are people out there who are able to sit down and be like, we totally understand what you're going through. Mm-hmm. Not just sympathize and empathize with you, but like to really know what you exactly. are dealing with. Like exactly. Your core, because it changes who you are as a person almost. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, I, it's weird because people are always like, like, you know, if you could change what you went through and stop yourself from having cancer, would you? And it's such a hard question because I don't think I'd be the person I am today if I didn't go through it. And obviously, like, I wouldn't wish this on anybody. And I wouldn't, like, want to go through it again. But it's one of those things where it's like, it's so hard because I don't know who I would be without, like, my experience. I don't know who, like, the relationships, like, the people that I met, like, I would not give that up for anything because they're so important to me. And that's, the weird part about going through something like this you wish you didn't have it but at the same time mm-hmm. not going through it you don't get all of these incredible things that happen to you on the way exactly you wouldn't have met exactly. all the people at camp you wouldn't have gone to camp simcha exactly that wouldn't have happened you know so it kind of it, and it's weird catch 22 almost you know it's like you're damned if you mm-hmm. do damned if you don't and you don't really know what's going to happen if you're not exactly. going through it so it it, it is a really difficult question to to ask. And a lot of people would tell you, it's like, yeah, I would never want to wish that it's on anybody, but would they undo it? No, probably not. Because like you said, mm-hmm. it has in a way created you to who, for who you are today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You and like person. I say, it's like, and, it's a part of me, but it doesn't define who I am. Right. Like I'm not cancer. Cancer is a part of me. And it's like, you know, one of the things that kind of falls under the categories and stuff, but it's not all that I am. Right. And that's, it's it's just such an important thing for people to understand that and pull, be able to pull that out of such mm-hmm. a dark thing and such a hard thing to deal with, especially going through it three times. There is always a light at the end of the tunnel. There is a positivity. There is that go-to. You have your support system. You have what you need in front of you. It's just the mm-hmm. will and that drive to keep going. And just when you are at there and the fact that you actually realized and said to yourself, you got yourself through all this three times. Well, it wasn't just me. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, I, like I said, like, well, is, right. But it's you and your treatment. Totally. No one else is able to sit there and pull it out from you and mm-hmm. force you to do anything. Right. Yeah. You could just said at some point, like you said, you went into 
your third surgery with the whatever, I don't care mentality, but you came out of it with such a positive outlook afterwards. Exactly. Exactly. You know, only you could have turned that around. Yeah. And it's funny because it's like one of my speeches when you said the light at the end of the tunnel, it's like, that is what High Lifeline is because I felt like, <clears throat> excuse me, hold on. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I was running this race and like the, the finish line kept getting pushed back and pushed back and pushed back. And every time I thought that I was at the end of it, I was like, nope, it's, it kept going back and kept going back and I couldn't do it. And I was out of breath and I was tired and I wanted to give up. And the tunnel was just like, kept getting like longer and longer and longer. And High Lifeline is that, you know, that light at the end of the tunnel where the counselors came onto the tracks and they picked me up and they're like, we're going to work with you and we're going to get you through this. And they helped me finish, you know, get on the finish line and stuff. And it's one of those things where it's like, they, it's not just about what I was going through. It was about how they helped me go through and they like, you know, supported me and they were there for me and they didn't let me give up because they're like, you know, it sucks being in the hospital and I'm going to come in and visit you and I'm going to give you an art project to do because you know, that kind of separates between being in the hospital to let's do something fun. And so it was one of those things where it's, it's so, it, it, I, I can't put into words. Like it's one of those things where it's like, you cannot put into words unless you experience it yourself, whether you are a camper or a counselor or just watching it. Like it is the most incredible and amazing organization because they don't let you feel alone and they don't let you give up because they're like, we are here for you. We're going to support you. And we're going to do everything we can to be by your side. And that's the beautiful thing about High Lifeline, especially with the case management teams that we have like across the nation, like Canada, US, Israel, UK. Um, you know, like we have incredible, incredible staff. And this is one of the beautiful things that we do and that we're able to do is be there for these families and know what they need when they don't know what they need. You know? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's like everything they were bringing meals to the hospital and they were able to like, you know, let my mom have a break. I mean, she didn't, she didn't want a break, but able to kind of like break up the tension of like being in the hospital and stuff. And they're just, yeah. It's phenomenal. I, was there something about uh, you came home to a package of a wig? So when I lost my hair, I was like really upset about it. And I was like, okay, you know what? Like I feel like such a thing to stare at and stuff. And so, yep. And so it was funny because crazy coincidence, but they had had a wig that was made by this aunt of her niece had cancer and stuff. So she, she cut off her hair and she made a wig and they found out that I had curly hair. So they curled the wig and I came home to it. And I was like, like the fact that they took that extra step of finding me a wig and making sure that my wig had curly hair was a, like, it was like unheard of. I was like, okay, wait, like this kind of looks like my hair. I can, I can pull this off. And my mom always said, like, I came home and like, it would come down for school and stuff. My hair would be in a pigtail or it'd be braided and stuff. And I was able to like do stuff with the hair and kind of feel normal. And so even though it wasn't my hair and it was a wig and I took it off, but I was still able to kind of like narrow in on something and focus in on something that was like, this is hair. I can play with this hair. I can do something with this hair. I can like wear it and put a hat with it and stuff. And so, yeah, no, that was, that was a big thing for me. And that was kind of like one of the first things that Highlight Fun had done was um, the wig and stuff. And I was like, okay, wait, this is really cool to be able to like have a wig that looks like my hair and kind of like feel some sense of normalcy. That's awesome. But it, it's so, it's so important to have these kinds of support systems around you, especially when you're going through such a, a thing and you're at that age where you can't fully comprehend what's going on. Mm -hmm. have people exactly. there to guide you and hold your hand through it and just be like, listen, this is what it is. Exactly. We're going to help you. We're going to give you mm -hmm. everything you need that you don't know that you need and you are going to be fine. Yeah. And like, I mean, stepping off the, the bus, I camp on that first day, 
was like crazy because if you've seen any videos of like camp and stuff everyone is cheering and screaming and chanting and dancing and things like that and i remember being like super self-conscious about like my like my head and stuff and like not having any hair but then i look around i'm like these kids look like me there are other kids that don't have hair and nobody is like making it like oh my gosh look that kid clearly has cancer and stuff it was just kind of like the norm and stuff and nobody said anything nobody did anything it was just like a, a safe space to be yourself but be yourself who's going through cancer but do you still talk to the people that you met there yes yeah it's funny so i actually have a really good friend and when i was in florida i actually went to go visit her um and so like i've known her like for over a decade from camp and stuff and i still talk to counselors and stuff and I mean, it's hard because it's like you obviously have friends that you've lost and friends that, you know, didn't make it. And so that's really hard because it's like, well, why aren't they here? But I am. And so I remember my one of my very good friends who I met on our mayor and like we were friends for like like a few years after that passed away right before I gave the speech um, for Wish at the Wall um, in Chicago. And that was really hard because like I was giving the speech about like how I'm a survivor and I'm here and stuff and I made it through and stuff. But like she had just passed away. And so it's, it's really hard because like you kind of have this mentality of like you're going to this camp and making these friends, knowing that not all of them are doing okay, but at the same time, they've helped you through something that like is horrific and stuff. And they've kind of changed your perspective and made you a better person. And so like, again, like I wouldn't trade these friendships for anything. Um, but yeah, no, there's a lot of people that I still talk to. Um, for those who don't know, can you explain what Ormer trip is? Yeah, so Ormeyer is, um, it's kind of like High Lifeline, so they have Camp Sub Club and they have like other branches of trips and um, events that they do. And so there's Wish at the Wall and there's Ormeyer. Ormeyer is a four-day trip where um, they take you to Florida and you go to Universal, Magic Kingdom, SeaWorld, and I think you go to the other park of Universal. And this trip is insane. Like it is full forest every possible thing that you could imagine like they this was before like toys r us because when i went to toys r us was still a thing they let you just buy whatever you want like they let you um kind of like you get fast passes you can go on all the rides the food is incredible like it is amazing they rent out like almost like half the hotel and stuff and it's this trip who it's for kids who are just recently being diagnosed and stuff are kind of like in the, the big thick of it and are going through like the, the main part um, and they just like, they just like spoil you and just like let you have this amazing time and make you feel like a kid who's at Disneyland and stuff and just magical experience and stuff. So you have the magic of Disney and then you also have the magic of, of Camp Sim, or not Camp Sim, but or Mayor. But it's, yeah, no, it's a really cool organization. That's like part of it. I, think, you're, I, th I think they brought in like um, a Target kind of store into, I think, I don't know if it was into the hotel or took them actually to Target, but they walked out with like shopping carts right things. yeah and it's like they i mean it was also like like full stuff like it was like name brand like like fancy stuff like and it was just like whatever you want but that's also the thing is like at camp and stuff like you have you know full whatever to the canteen you have deal day i remember <laughs> i like had no idea i thought deal day was because you got like really good deals not that it was from people from deal which is i guess a place in new york <laughs> didn't get it but yeah like you like you're they say to you like come with an empty suitcase because you're going to be leaving with stuff like they just like love giving kids stuff to like feel happy and when you know it's amazing so going through all this we are almost we're coming to an end soon but I'm, I'm very interested to know this going through everything that you've been through what is your outlook on life now and how has everything kind of changed and guided your life to this point yeah i mean I know it's kind of a loaded kind of question this. but like 
Oh, it's a very loaded question because like I said, like it's one of those things where it's like, how do you kind of like, it's this tangled weave of everything that you've been through and stuff. And so it's like, you know, your normal day-to-day stuff of going to college and going to school and, you know, being a student. And then also like having to go for checkups and having to go for like MRIs and stuff and having to take off of class because I have to go into the hospital and stuff. And it's this really tangled weave of everything that I've been through. But then it's like, when you pull little things out, it's like those little moments of like, okay, I graduated college. I did my student teaching. I am working at a school. And then also like, I beat cancer three times. I, I survived cancer. I fought cancer, like whatever, you know, term you want to use, but it's like, I have gone through cancer three times and I'm still here today. And it's like I said, like it's finding those positive moments in every single day. And like, what can you look forward to in each day that will get you to tomorrow and say tomorrow, I'm looking forward to you because I know what I can expect is something positive. Even if the whole day was terrible, I'll find that one positive moment and just keep living my life, living for the positive and finding each moment that I can like, you know, hold on to and and think about. Absolutely incredible. You're able to pull (laughs) so much positivity out of this story because it's, it's such a difficult one to start Mm -hmm. off at such a young age and then two more times. Yep. You know, it's not something that a lot of people deal with. It's have to have cancer three times in a lifetime like that, especially the same kind. So, um, you know, like I've heard people having it and doing treatments and then that treatment causing a different kind of cancer on top of what they Mm -hmm. have and dealing with that too. But this is like, you're dealing with the same thing at important times in your life. So the fact, I mean, it's hard because it's like, I I have a thing called NF, which is neurofibromatosis. And they cause like um, plexiforms, which can cause tumors that can then be cancer. So I'm always living with something that could possibly like come out like as cancer. And I'm not doing it as of right now, just because like with COVID and stuff, but I was part of like a, um, a national study at the NIH for NF to figure out like, why do some people have cancer with this? And why do some people not? And so it's like, it's really scary because it's not just the cancer. It's also this underlying thing that I have that has caused cancer. So again, like it's one of those things where it's like, you have to have your regular checkups and, you know, MRIs and making sure that there's nothing there. But then you also have to like, keep an eye on everything else because like you have this underlying thing that is causing it. Was that diagnosed afterwards? Before. So I had always had a diagnosis of it from when I was very, very little, but I like, it was one of those things where like, I didn't realize it. And it was like one of those things where like, I knew I had these, like, like they're like little spots that can become like, they, they fill up with like tissue and stuff. And then it be, can, can become malignant. Um, it can become cancerous. But like, I didn't know that it was caused by cancer. Like I knew I had the birthmarks and I knew I had like little, like they're kind of like tissue kind of, it, it's weird to explain. But, um, and some people, I mean, like you can look it up. Like some people have it like much, much more severe and stuff. And it's like, it can be very intense. Um, and thankfully like mine is not a super like uh, extreme case. But again, like I didn't understand that it had caused my cancer. So that was also really hard to know that it's like there was something about like my cancer that was caused and it's like a lifelong thing that I have to deal with. Does that kind of make it easier though to deal with? Like, is there no way for them to treat that diagnosis before the cancer started or that's just kind of something yeah, you're no, born with and that's what you're going to have? Yeah, exactly. It's something you're born with. And that's also another thing is like, they're hoping to find some kind of cure or treatment, which is why I've been doing this, this study at the NIH. Oh, wow. um, but yeah, no, it's, it's like kind of like one of those main things that like that you have and then live with. Crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so we are crazy, crazy. at our end right now. I feel like we keep going though. Um, Definitely. Is there any last words or anything you want to end this with to share some hope with people, given something from your journey? Oh gosh, the pressure's on. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I think it's one of those things where I have my story and I have my journey 
and it's a part of me and I'm proud of it. If that sounds weird, like I'm proud of what I went through and I, I switched from being ashamed of what I went through to being proud of it because I've become stronger. I've become, I've changed my perspective. I've, you know, started to look at life through the positives and, you know, the important moments and stuff. And I think that it's really important to kind of take each day, day by day and understand that you have this long journey sometimes and you have like things that are really hard and you're going through something. But instead of like what I think about where it's like, oh my gosh, I had all this treatment I need to do and all the surgery and this was all these big things, but just taking it day by day and one positive thing you can get through one positive thing you can pull out from that day. And then soon you'll be able to kind of like live your life and, you know, take each day for what it is each day for being a blessing and, you know, being thankful for it. Micro steps. Exactly. Incredible. Thank you so, so much for sharing with us. Thank you for your time. Really appreciate it. Um, I feel like I keep going on with you about this because this is really super fascinating. It's been a great conversation. I really do appreciate yeah, I've it. Enjoyed it. Everything yeah. been going through. Like I said, like, it's a, like, how do you do every, you know, thing that you've been through in an hour, but. We got through a lot, but there's still yeah. so much more. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely. Thank you again. Thank you. Have a great evening. Have a great evening. What a great story. Rivka goes through a journey from the ages of 12, 17, and 19, dealing with the possibility of losing her leg. She was ready to give up, going through the loss of her grandparents, the miracle of chemo shrinking her tumor down to only 2%, and the doctor wasn't even expecting it to do anything. You know, from going into her last surgery, not knowing whether or not she was going to actually wake up with both legs or possibly not wake up at all. And she comes through and her entire outlook changed. She wanted to push through and get better. And she went ahead and created these small little goals for herself, you know, and having given up hope and finding it again. This is a lesson that everybody can take with them into their everyday lives, whether it's a personal life, friendships, relationships, their business. When things look bleak, there's always a chance of pulling through. Thank you, Rivka, for your story and time, and thank you to the listeners for choosing to listen to us today. On Air with High is a High Lifeline Canada project, produced by myself, Brian Strasberg, hosted by myself and the executive director of High Lifeline Canada, Mordechai Rothman. Guests are booked by Orly Davis, and graphic design is done by Candace Alper. On Air with High is edited by myself, and the music is provided by Music Unlimited at pixabay.com. To learn more about High Lifeline and how you can help us, please visit our website at highlifelinecanada.org. Don't forget to subscribe and give us that five-star rating. And of course, share it with all your friends. Thank you for choosing to listen to On Air with High and supporting our cause. Being a nonprofit organization, we rely on the support from our community to help keep our programs running and allow us to continually service our families while offering incredible experiences, such as family vacations after treatments, trips to Edmonton Mall, home-cooked meals, big sibling programs, day camp and sleepover camp, and many, many more. If you enjoy our stories and you're thinking of making a charitable donation, think of High Lifeline Canada and the children you would be supporting. You can visit us at highlifelinecanada.org.